Hello, it's Jack Tudor here of Attention Magazine. Welcome to Crucial Listening, the podcast where I speak with musicians and sound artists about three albums that are important to them. My guest this time is Mira Martin-Gray, an experimental musician from Toronto, who has a new album, Hen's Teeth, on Rap Drifting, Eric Cheneau's label. It's a record that swerves upon the spectrum of songcraft and improvisation. You have the first half, which has these beautiful, very intimate songs for an array of acoustic instruments, plus Mira's own electronics. And Mira's voice, as well as this hush, very carefully poised, the lyrics center, for the most part, from my side anyway, seem to center on the charms of day-to-day life, memories, things that feel very small scale, kind of incidental, and it gives the improvisations a very casual conversation, mid-afternoon, lounging in your living room with friends kind of vibe. And the second half spills into these extended improvised pieces, as though the more abrasive electronics of the first half have introduced a hairline fracture that then busts open the whole record in the second half. The fact that the record has this spectrum and migrates from structure to improvisation in this way feels really apt for Mira. Her output is all over the map. She did a dance record on the SH-101 for My Label Hard Return. She's done stick control for the air drummer, which is centered on 808 samples on MIDI sequences beamed at a prepared snare drum. She's done loads of different bits, all of them really compelling. I know that one consistency is that I'm going to feel really buzzed when I hear one of Mira's records. Hen's Teeth is no exception. So I hope you enjoy this conversation. It was great to actually speak to Mira by voice, having conversed over emails for the past few years, loved the records that she picked. This was a good time. So if you are enjoying the podcast and wish to support it, you can do so over at coffeeko-fi.com forward slash crucial listening. Donations there, one-off or monthly, will help support the outgoings associated with keeping the podcast ticking. Thank you for listening. Okay, this is Mira Martin Gray on Crucial Listening. Mira, welcome to Crucial Listening. Hi, Jack. Thanks for having me. Big fan of the pod. <laughs> oh, thank you so much. Uh, it's lovely to have you on. Uh, I want to talk about your three important albums. I've had a lot of fun with those. Before we get to talking about them, I want to talk about your new album, which I've also been having a wonderful time with. It's called Hen's Teeth, and it's out on Eric Cheneau's Rat Drifting label. So, I mean, I want to start by acknowledging the fact that I've been 
listening to your music for a few years now and my primary interaction with your music has been stuff that is broadly speaking more towards like the abstract terrain right the release on yeah. spectrum stick control also the release you put out for the label that i've been involved in hard return under cypro so i was aware that you made music that had more of a song centric basis to it but it's wonderful to really dive into it like this so I wanted to ask you about these different facets of your output to begin with. I mean, how come you're round to releasing a record that consists of songs again? Did you ever stop making them? Like, how do all these components of your output and the directions you go in, how do they kind of coexist? Yeah, um, well, thanks for the kind words. I, um, I've definitely always been doing songs. Um, for a while, I stopped um, playing the guitar entirely for like health reasons. Mm. And so a big part of my getting into like performing more abstract music was it was contingent on a necessary <laughs> kind right. of basis. I, although I was, uh, you know, interested um, in experimental music, I, I wasn't participating in it until I had to sort of stop being a, a songwriter uh, or, or, or I felt that I did. I wanted to take a break from it. Mm. And yeah, on this record, I, I really wanted to bridge that kind of divide between like, well, here's a song and here's uh, some weird thing. <laughs> uh, because it is kind of an artificial, you know, divide mm. sometimes. Uh, it's funny, like, you know, we'll talk about, like, pieces rather than songs, right? Or compositions. Mm. Uh, or and sometimes when you call something a song, it feels like, well, it's not quite a song, is it? <laughs> right. <Yeah. laughs> um, and so the original idea with this was to kind of weave it into a natural kind of tapestry of of songs and sounds. And it ended up being more like, well, one side is song and one side is sound quote unquote mm. um one side is like the more sort of free improv stuff and one side is the more writing chord progressions and singing blah 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 but yeah i wanted to kind of make sense of the different facets of what i do and try to kind of i don't know prove to myself that it wasn't all like a, a totally fractured kind of <laughs> psyche of a musician nice um i'm really intrigued actually to ask about how you recorded these because am i right from the text i gather that everyone contributing or you know there were multiple locations involved basically and not sort of a um not all you getting together in one room so how did these how did the songs? let's start with the songs but how did they start out how did they start begin their life and how did you go about bringing those into kind of like having a full band context because it sounds like wonderfully together and coherent you'd never know that things well were so some of, there are there are a couple uh songs well there's one song the first song mm. uh is is recorded in a room with everyone right right um but the rest of them are kind of assembled piecemeal and, you know, part of that was, like, 
COVID concerns, obviously, blah, blah, blah. Part of that was (laughs) also like, so, well, I'll I'll answer your other question, which is like, where did they begin? Hmm. Um, And the answer is in in different ways, different places. Um, Some of them began as like poems or journal entry kind of things. Uh, So I would have like lyrics and then I would sing to myself the shape it into a melody harmonize it like write the chord structure on the basis of the words and then on some things it was the other way around where you know i've i've got like some old bits and pieces of music that i want to make sense of and put together and yeah so when it came to putting it all together i just got in touch with some of my you know close friends and collaborators in the scene here in Toronto and you know I was lucky enough to be able to get a grant to pay them (laughs) which was good (laughs) and um and so some people have like nice home studio situations where uh so it could be like you know laying down pristine audio and other people like recording a harmonica in their closet or, <laughs> uh, you know, uh, and, and then I did end up going into a couple of like studios to, to do some, especially with the, uh, woodwinds on there or in a studio. And yeah, that first track with the full sort of acoustic jazz band sound is, is in a semi studio kind of situation. Also, as well, I wanted to ask about the text scores. So there are a couple on Bandcamp that I can see. They seem like really lovely provocations for the people you're working with. So, yeah, tell me about your relationship with text scores and how you landed on those instructions that appear on this this record. Yeah, well, um, I mean, obviously, uh, Pauline Oliveros is kind of the or uh, text person uh, Mm -hmm. for uh this kind of thing and so obviously i've i've read her work on around that and i also like took a not a course but like a a little uh deep listening i don't know it wasn't a retreat or anything it was just like a a little uh couple hours uh with this woman ann bourne who's a great cellist and was a student of pauline's but yeah i think it, it was kind of the thought initially was that I was going to use a bunch of different text scores, give the musicians those, have them send me back whatever they do, and then weave in all of that stuff and like recompose it and like do all sorts mm. of crazy Ableton stuff. And that just ended up being way too much work. <laughs> <laughs> but instead, it really worked out. Um, I'm not like super fluent with traditional notation like i i am i i did actually use the pandemic as an opportunity to kind of reacquaint myself with that stuff that i've sort of forgotten since Hmm. since i uh, initially learned it so so there was also like actual charts for certain things but Mm -hmm. the text scores were just a way to direct without directing just a gentle kind of way of establishing a mood and 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 uniting musicians that are not in the same room with a kind of purpose i guess you've touched on this i think in the answer to your to my first question but 
the way the album is sequenced I think is really interesting as a listening experience because you start obviously with this cluster of tracks that do fall under what we would traditionally say are songs there are these hints of agitation within those structures and then it kind of spills into the second half and these two elongated improvised pieces so there's a lovely moment on the record where and I can't remember the last lyric it's to do with like a snowflake isn't it before it spills into the improv it's got oh, yeah. this lovely like way to kind of leave that area of the record and go into the next one so I guess there are you know there, there are other ways you could have gone about it with sequencing like they could have been interspersed you could have gone in and out but uh, you know I'm really attached to the way you've gone about it so can you tell me about the considerations of sequencing the record like that and having that huge improv section at the end. Yeah, I'm glad you find the sequence makes sense because I definitely struggled with the sequencing. Because, mm. um, yeah, and I, I was thinking that maybe, the, the you know, we'd have a song and then an instrumental and a song and instrumental kind of vibe. Mm-hmm. Uh, ultimately, I thought, like, A, some people like songs some people like (laughs) abstract music and they don't necessarily want it uh interrupting their listening experience like Mm -hmm. just just simply like well can my mom listen to this she can only listen she can listen to the first half (laughs) you know um but i also just i thought of it as like sets in a way right as well like often you'll have like oh well here's the first set and we'll come back for a second set and it might be a different vibe so the record, as I've said, is great. It's coming out on yeah, Eric Schnee's Rat Drifting, which is a lovely label as well. Um, people, please check it out. I'll put the links in the show notes. And yeah, Mira, let's talk about your important records now. So one question I ask at this point is about how you thought about the word important when picking your list of records. So was there a way that you understood the word important in order to come up with the records that you did? Yeah, this was, um, I mean, important, right? Like, there are a lot of records that have been important to me, as as is obviously the case for any, you know, serious listener or musician. Mm-hmm. I didn't want to choose stuff that, like, I know everyone has heard and will, you know, like, <laughs> no one... Like, we can talk about, like, Sgt. Peppers. <laughs> like, I'm happy to do that. Like, we can just throw out all our prep and do that. Um, but I just thought it wouldn't be that interesting. Uh-huh. Um, you know, and there are other things. That, yeah, like, there's stuff that's been really, really meaningful to me, like Joni Mitchell's Blue or something, where it's like, what hasn't been said about it? You know what I mean? Right, sure, yeah. And sure. so I wanted, I wanted to choose stuff that... I have spent a lot of time with, but that, like, maybe somebody hasn't heard. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, that was kind of my thought process. Lovely. And on that, I hadn't heard any of these before, actually, so that's a plus. So, yeah, which one do you want to go for first, Mira? Let's do chronological. (laughs) I like systematic (laughs) things. Cool. I guess then in terms of when it was recorded, I suppose yes. we're going with Thelonious Monk Quartet with John Coltrane at Carnegie Hall. Right. Recorded in nineteen fifty seven. 
uh, released in 2005. So yeah, give me a little introduction as to why this one's important to you. Okay, well, yeah, and you'll notice two of the records I chose are from 2005. Uh, Mm -hmm. So I guess that was a time when I was really doing a lot of important listening. But Mm. yeah, so The Monk, I mean, it's it's Thelonious Monk, obviously. Um, This is... You know, when I was first starting to get into jazz in high school, through through just like being in the music program, and also through just like being online all the time and being able to like go on Demonoid and download torrents <laughs> of like anything. Mm-hmm. Um, so you know, you get your typical jazz starter pack, right? You get your Miles Davis and John Coltrane and stuff, mm-hmm. and. Um, through looking about John Coltrane, I came across Thelonious Monk, and uh, I got this record, which I didn't know was like this lost treasure that had only just come out that year. Right. Um, wow. So I listened to it, and it was, you know, it's fabulous. It's a really good, like, hi fi recording for a live recording for mm-hmm. that time. And yeah, just listening to Thelonious Monk's compositions. They're very different from, you know, say, like, I don't know, like, typical, like, Charlie Parker-style bebop kind of stuff, right? Like, there's Mm. this real weird tonality, weird, like, symmetrical but slightly off kind of vibe, Mm -hmm. which I found really, really satisfying and interesting. And you could have, I guess, because of Monk's caliber gone for like a straight up monk record obviously the fact that Coltrane is on here is very interesting because there's not loads of documentation of them both together and I think that was to do with like label business for the most part but what is it about say like John Coltrane's presence on this record that well you know the rest of the band as well but you know Coltrane I guess juts out um, that made you pick this record rather than like a straight up monk album? Um, well, like this is this is the one that introduced me, right? So mm. this is the first one I heard. And it just so happens that it's this interesting historical documentation of a short-lived collaboration. And yeah, but it is an... Uh, if, you, if you read uh, Robin D.G. Kelly's book on monk... It's a really interesting period. I recommend it in his career because before this, he basically was banned from playing live. Like prior to nineteen, all yeah. all through the fifties, like fifty two to fifty seven, he he was not allowed to play in New York City because he lost his cabaret card for like bullshit charge. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so, this is kind of his like comeback period or the beginning of it, and he's like really on fire like on the on the album Mm -hmm. you know you know you listen to some of his later albums and they're a little bit more clunky um and obviously the clunkiness is part of what we like about his playing but yeah it's just the band is really good like the drums are super loud especially in the first set which (laughs) which i like yeah yeah um and yeah coltrane's playing is is good it's not like you can hear that he is um, still like working on his sound in a certain way. Like he sounds really, really good on Monk's mood. I think he sounds really, really good on 
um, Epistrophe, which is my mm-hmm. favorite track on the album. I don't know. It was just it was just an album that I came across that I spent a lot of time with. Um, I like this. Yeah, this is in high school, so I used it uh, when I had an art project to like we had to like make a photography slideshow and choose a piece of music to go with your photographs. And I chose this. Uh, I chose Epistrophe um, because I just love the drums, like the pitter pattery sort of like super busy drums and the the melody and um my classmate like after it was over was like so like that's it like where does where's the song (laughs) (laughs) you know what i mean (laughs) (laughs) it's funny it's funny to think about but like if you don't have that kind of foot in the door of this kind of music it's like what am i hearing you know what i mean right yeah it made so much sense. It was very like beautiful and satisfying music to me. But then I would try to show it to people, and they'd be like, "And I just mean like jazz in general," uh, to like friends of mine who were interested in like rock music or whatever. They'd be like, "Yeah, it's okay," you know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I I find it fascinating as well, right? That you hear the crowd at the beginning and obviously at various points. I love that about jazz. Like I haven't seen a lot of actual live jazz, but the I you know, the whole notion of applauding mid piece is just <laughs> I really like it. But it sounds like a sizable crowd and this is like nineteen fifty seven and you hear some of this stuff, and you're like, people are just getting off on this stuff in in like the fifties and you can mm-hmm. play it to someone now and they're like, Whoa, <laughs> Yeah, whoa, this is a bit much for me, thank you. <laughs> it's true. Well, yeah, and I think I think this recording I think there were a bunch of other performances that night. It was sort of a showcase of jazz at Carnegie Hall, if I'm not mistaken. Wow. Um, so that was kind of a big deal to have it not be in the clubs, but for it to be like presented as concert music. Mm, mm-hmm. Which is kind of normal now, but yeah. I mean, so I haven't spent loads of time with Monk. I've spent a lot of time with Coltrane. And Mm. I wanted to ask you about an observation I made about their interplay, which is amazing. Like, it felt like a lot of occasions after Coltrane had finished a solo, which, because he's Coltrane, go on for like two minutes or three minutes. And you kind of get the sense he's lost sense of how long they're going on. When Monk comes back in and plays a solo, it's like... Coltrane is just on all the time and then Monk will leave like two, three bars and not play anything at all. Like we'll do one chord and then like really quick stabby chord and then stop and just leave all this space. It feels like a really for for, for someone who hasn't spent a lot of time with Monk, it feels like very, very much like a deliberate contrast to that complete maximalist occupation of space of Coltrane but is that, is that a Monk thing, or is it more pronounced on this record? No, I think that's a Monk thing. I think he definitely is someone who was kind of very interested in, you know, the space and, you know, these sort of uh, rhythmic displacements. Um, you know, the note doesn't come where you think it's going to come. Mm-hmm. And I think there's also, like, very much a teacher-student kind of thing happening in this, where it's like, <laughs> all right, slow down. <laughs> right. <laughs> so there could be some of that. But if you, I mean, yeah, he he's not someone who plays 100 notes in a bar. He, 
mm-hmm. which which I'm attracted to a because I can't do it either. Right, <laughs> right. But it, so it's like, yeah, he knows what he's doing, and therefore, <laughs> it's okay for the rest of us. <laughs> <laughs> and you discovered this back in when it came out, so that's you know, eighteen years ago now. How has your relationship with it changed? I mean, obviously, you've picked it now. So it's stuck mm-hmm. about, but yeah, have you had a changing relationship with it as time has gone on? With this, with this particular record, um, yeah, yeah. I think well, when 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 asked about my important records, I was thinking, well, like I need to choose some sort of jazz album that I was interested in in a serious, prolonged way. So, um, but I thought, yeah, I thought this one might be something that people hadn't necessarily heard this particular recording but mm-hmm. how has my relationship with it changed it's not like it's something that i've listened to like you know once a month every year since 2005 or anything right yeah um i think how listening to it now is compared to then i know all the tunes really well like and i've heard different recordings of them you know i've read this like 450 page autobiography <laughs> uh or not autobiography biography of of monk and uh yeah i've spent a lot more time and i also i guess i understand more of like what he's doing now like musically mm. uh than i did when i first listened to it when it was just like oh cool like this sounds weird, you know, <laughs> or it's yeah. like now it's like, oh, okay, he's playing the whole tone scale here. Oh, okay, like this is rubato, this is, you know, a tritone, whatever. to your second important record so where are we at oh Owen Pallet right that's the next yes. one was it released as Final Fantasy I can't remember yes it was re- released as Final Fantasy has a good home in 2005 cool. and was just re-released uh, with a really really nice remaster his uh, first two full lengths and and his EPs from the Final Fantasy era have been given really nice remasters that just came out and I encourage everyone to listen to those. <laughs> nice. So, yeah, give me a little introduction as to why this one is important. So, what I would say to introduce this is this is being Canadian. Okay, being Canadian. <laughs> you're growing up and you you hear about Celine Dion. Uh, and other like really corny sort of music, uh, and that's what you think Canadian music is. <laughs> All right. Um, and I guess Alanis Morissette's pretty cool. Um, uh-huh. but like yeah, Celine Dion, this group like the Bare Naked Ladies, which you probably haven't heard of, but they're like very big in Canada. <laughs> I've heard of them. Yeah, never listened. 
Yeah, I don't recommend it. Um, <laughs> and <laughs> and then and then there was the like pop punk era of like Avril Lavigne, Some Forty One. I was majorly into those things when they came out. Mm. Um, yeah. So l- listening to this record when I was uh, in high school in two thousand five. Yeah, it was like, oh, Canadian music doesn't have to be corny as fuck. Like, <laughs> it, <laughs> um, I think a friend told me about this, showed me a song, uh, The CN Tower Belongs to the Dead, which, again, like, hearing, oh, The CN Tower, like, in a song? That's <laughs> like that building downtown that <laughs> you go to and, and you stand on the glass floor. Yeah, um, I did that. You did that, eh? Very uh-huh. scary. Yeah. <laughs> it is, yeah. <laughs> um but yeah, so I think I think my friend like had seen uh this song on like a blog probably, like, you know, music blog, MP three blogs were like very popular at that time in this mm. sort of indie world. And showed it to me and I was like, This is pretty cool. Like this is I like the I like the kind of whispery kind of creepy kind of gay vibe right yeah <laughs> and uh and so yeah i got into the record and I, at this time i was also into other sort of uh sort of soft bookish kind of <laughs> music you know like bell and sebastian and that kind of thing but hearing this i was like oh okay this is like local like this feels like very cool local music that like someone you know downtown is making in some cool place like (laughs) which felt very exciting to me at the time what was it about it that then stuck with you i i I thought this is a this is a very very interesting record like feels like it definitely originates from a particular point in time but uh, i had a really good time with it i mean was there anything about it musically that you know I guess mm-hmm. beyond being like the uncorny, yeah, yeah, um, yeah, Canadian artist, like, yeah, what was it that really brought it out to you as like I think, a cool record? Um, it's very catchy. Like, the, yeah. there there are a lot of earworms, and the the lyrics sort of alternate between like ordinary personal concerns and like totally oblique kind of mm-hmm. obscure things, mm-hmm. which I found attractive, and I just found it, you know. It has a certain sound to it that's very that was very unique when I first heard it, and I think still is. Yeah, he really has a way with with melody. Mm. Um, he can get a little bit, you know, not necessarily experimental in the sense of like screechy scronky stuff, but there's, uh, you know, some of the tracks have kind of actually like with Monk, like there's a certain like rhythmic displacement. Mm, uh, mm-hmm. In some of them, it's different, right? But it's it's very catchy at the same time. And also, I think at the time, like someone doing music with a looping pedal was like very innovative. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. So, like his shows would all be like just like a solo violin and and looping pedal. And um, also, he just has a really pretty sort of mellow voice. Mm. So yeah, it just it just really appealed to me, and actually his first like 
three albums I, were were all very important to me, and I had a hard time choosing which one. But I thought <laughs> this one, like since it was the front, first one that I heard, I would go with this. Nice. And have you seen Owen live? Honestly, it's a huge embarrassment that I haven't. <laughs> um, but uh, I I hope to someday. And I mean, it's kind of. I almost feel weird being such a fangirl because, like, you know, like we have mutual friends. So it feels like if wow. I met him, oh, it would cool. be like, what is happening? <laughs> <laughs> but it would also be extremely normal. So, but I, no, I, I didn't at the time, like, I don't know. I, I heard it when I was like 15 and 16 or whatever. So, you know, most shows were 19 plus and I didn't, I wasn't cool enough to have a fake ID or anything. <laughs> um, and then, yeah, I just, I don't know. It just never happened, but I've spent so much time with the records and, mm. um, they're also like, there are a lot of like, uh, nice live recordings, like bootlegs that I've heard. And actually, um, just recently when I was like preparing for this uh, podcast recording, I was just looking at a fan site that someone runs, and I saw that he performed at the Music Gallery, which is this um, Toronto like new music experimental music institution. Um, and I said, it said Owen Pallet with Fred Frith and. Uh, John Oswald. I was like, what? <laughs> this does not seem right. Like, But yeah, apparently he was like, at least at some point, he was doing some some new music, experimental music kind of stuff wow, as well. That's so it's wild. interesting. That's yeah. so cool. Owen's done like a bunch of string arrangement as well, right? For different artists. Uh, that's right. Yeah. Have you had much interaction with their like, the string arrangements for other people I mean certainly Arcade Fire was a big deal um, mm -hmm. you know and all of those like Canadian indie rock people at the time like Broken Social Scene Feist and then other more like local people also the Hidden Cameras I think I think maybe Owen did some stuff for them as well they're another kind of like queer uh, Canadian indie band from that era mm -hmm. um yeah, I think his strings are so beautiful, especially on his um, orchestral record and his string quartet record, which are the second and third ones. Uh, they, yeah, just totally gorgeous tonality. You know, mm. it's it's this weird mix of catchy and and with dissonances and with different elements that that yeah. He became a very important artist to me. You mentioned the remaster, and I want to talk about actually about the production because one thing that strikes me about the production is the absence, for the most part, of very prominent reverb, which I think with strings quite as lush as this can, mm. feels quite um, surprising. Like it brings like a strange intimacy to a context that doesn't always carry it, and. I have seen it. I'm sorry to bring this up. Maybe I, I think breaking up 
like old tweets people have done is very bad practice. You did a tweet about reverb once, and I think the release you did on Hard Return had no reverb at all. That's where, true. Yeah. <laughs> I think you said something like reverb is like vanilla essences to cooking, which stuck in my head because I use reverb like all the time. But like you picking this record and it being something that has so little reverb and knowing your music that I've heard doesn't have a lot of reverb. Do you have like a, I don't know, like a particularly conscious relationship with that effect and reverb? Ah, well, um, I think I've um, gone back and forth on this. I do sometimes really, really quite like a very dry sound, but sometimes it doesn't work. And when I was mixing my new record uh, with the help of uh, an engineer, you know, they were saying like, you need you need more reverb (laughs) 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 so so guilty i guess but i do really like this sort of intimacy and and i have Mm. you know i don't have a loud voice and neither does owen like the singing style is very intimate and Mm -hmm. so when you put when you put a big reverb on an intimate voice it just sounds kind of strange yes um because that's not how spaces work (laughs) right Um, yes for sure although i will say I am not anti-vanilla essence. Uh, <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> I I actually am a big vanilla apologist, like vanilla ice cream <laughs> all the way. So let's get that straight. <laughs> Excellent. Okay. Amira, let's go to your final import. Oh, hang on. Sorry. I did want to ask one more question on the Owen one. Um, yeah. What Do you have a favorite track on Has a Good Home? Um, I think um, probably either the Chronicles of Sarnia or Please, Please, Please. It's tie between those two. Um, mm. Yeah, Chronicles of Sarnia just has a really pretty melody that sticks in your head, and Please, Please, Please has like this really cool like rhythmic thing going on where it feels like it's in an odd time. But I don't think it is. I think it's just this ah. weird rhythmic thing because i don't think it's very easy to use a looping pedal in an odd time Mm. ah that's interesting because yeah it always sounded really awkward and i would try and like hum along in the car and get caught out (laughs) by the syncopations that's got some very odd awesome backing vocals on it too right they like Um, screaming yeah 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 that's that's one where he does get loud yeah But we will never write you off Your head is shouting Please, please, please Please, please, please Don't let your cock do all the work All those around you Please, please, please Mira, let's go to your final important album. So yeah, give me the name of it and then a little bit about why it's important to you. Uh, so you task me with oh, saying yes. the name of the one that's in two foreign languages. That's fine. Yeah. <laughs> uh, this one is Kobuku Senju. Uh, and I believe it's Selective Hochst, something like that. I don't speak Norwegian. <laughs> that's the only one I, I had you say, wasn't it? That's... <laughs> bang out a line. <laughs> oh, I see what's going on. <laughs> uh, great. So, 
Yeah, give me a little introduction as to why this one's important to you. This one is actually the only one that I first heard on CD, buying it at a gig. This was probably like 2017, I want to say. My partner and I went. My partner and I went to this Toshimaru Nakamura Martin Taxed gig, and they were supporting their their duo album of no input mixer and microtonal tuba, um, mm. playing all the hits as you can imagine, <laughs> and and it was a really incredible concert. There was almost nobody there, which we felt like, are you kidding? Like this is like one of the like legends of of like maybe a very niche kind of music but still uh, yeah. a hugely important person i don't know maybe it wasn't well advertised or something but mm. but it was a wonderful show and we bought this cd there and a couple others um because uh my partner is a huge cd collector which i think i sing about on my record yes, and um yeah. And we were both totally stunned by this um, album that we bought. It, you know, it's just a really beautiful blend of, you know, the electronics, the guitar, and the and the winds. Just the like interplay of different textures and. Uh, yeah, I mean, I wanted to choose a record that was more on the abstract or side of things. Mm-hmm. Uh, and this is the one I thought of because it it became... Like, we listened to it a lot on the stereo. And it just felt like you can really hear the sort of instant composition aspect. You can really hear the sort of you know, the great things about free improv, right? Like the non-hierarchical kind of interplay, Hmm. uh, the ensemble sound, the weird extended techniques, but also just like the spirit of collaboration, Mm -hmm. um, which is something that I love about this kind of music. And, you know, it's also... This, as compared to the other two records, like there's something appealing about music that doesn't get stuck in your head. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Yeah, like yeah. you, you remember like the feeling of the music, but the song, there's no, there's not necessarily a song that gets stuck in your head uh, to drive you insane. Like it does to me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, so I really like that. I like that it has, you know, aspects of noise without it being noise right like i Mm -hmm. i don't i'm not a huge fan of like um plain old uh, vanilla extract harsh noise um (laughs) you know i like i like dynamics and interplay and like tonality even sometimes Mm. if i'm being good so (laughs) so yeah i thought this record just really exemplifies that kind of really beautiful ensemble electroacoustic improv sound that I like. Nice. One really striking aspect of this is like how Toshimaru Nakamura appears within this music and like what he decides 
to do at any given moment like it's so out of everyone who's playing it's like the most upfront texture throughout the record tends to be you know the no input feedback he's bringing mm-hmm. to the table so what's your and in fact i think you've you've played on the same bill right as nakamura before send and receive like what's your relationship like with nakamura's music uh yeah i mean uh my partner introduced me to his music and i i started thinking well like gee i could do that <laughs> so the, like, the 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 concept of the no input mixer as as a way to make music uh was very appealing and um you know we happened to have like a sort of junky old mixer that we wired up and played around with and uh that became a really important way in for me into into playing music with people like in a scene you know Mm, mm -hmm. feeling like a part of like contributing member of society if you will (laughs) um and so yeah i i love his 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 work uh i don't use the mixer the same way as him i don't think uh when i use it in an improv context um like i don't tend to do sort of like long tones and stuff like that i have a bit more of a scronky thing that i do often Hmm. but it's true it is very upfront on the mix but it makes sense somehow yes totally um and i don't know what there is to say about it other than it just kind of seems right Uh, i mean it's it's some of it some of it is like you know this is kind of a frequency that you wouldn't ordinarily want to hear for a very long time (laughs) but yeah but it works i don't know there's either either you dig it or you don't right like it's like Mm -hmm. it's one of those things yeah there feels to me like a bit of a wobbly tension there where it kind of sounds like it's protruding from the rest of the instruments and I think that's because I'm habituated primarily to hearing acoustic improvisation particularly when you've got what four musicians all playing acoustic instruments and then Nakamura mm-hmm. and electronics yeah you feel like it's an invasive like someone's done a at points and I mean this as a compliment like a doodle on a photograph where you're like that <laughs> wasn't there <laughs> when this is being taken <laughs> do you know what I mean right um, but that tension feels pretty yeah really exciting in the context of this this album totally i mean i will say like also as someone who plays with a lot of acoustic instruments as an electronic sound in the mix sometimes it's really hard to get that balance just right Mm. it can be really hard to not be too loud or too quiet you know because we don't have like our breath controlling it you know what i mean yeah for sure it does it does stick out but you know it's not a sore thumb it's like a very very inviting thumb (laughs) (laughs) it just it 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 draws you in right and and you you listen to what is happening beneath it it made me think of your i'm gonna call it a solo on pea pods which i'm guessing is you but yeah how long did that take to nail? Because that's got this jovial energy to it, which totally matches the music. And then just that serrated electronic edge 
which yes yeah, just nudging its way above what's happening it's so cool did mm. that take long to like get how you wanted it um so that that's interesting because that wasn't technically a no input mixer that was uh this new toy that i got uh that's like a touch plate feedback huh. synthesizer made by a company called landscape it's called the stereo field and it i tell you greatly reduces the kind of the amount of stuff that i need to take to a gig <laughs> so wow <I'm> very <laughs> grateful for them um and i'm i'm running that actually through autotune so i i decided like huh. okay i i want to have this kind of abrasive sound for the solo actually originally i was going to get trumpet but the trumpeter couldn't do it so i was like all right we're doing it live and i <laughs> i decided to uh kind of fit it into the music a little bit by running it through an auto-tune in the right key so that you know occasionally there is a note that you're like oh yes that is the same <laughs> note as 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 the guitar <laughs> uh, so that it's not just totally totally out uh, I, th I thought it's, i thought it turned out pretty good yeah love it that's great um yeah this selective host records wonderful it's really nice i think obviously we've spoken about the no input i love the contributions from was it tuba and mm -hmm. saxophone interestingly we've had so espen reinertson who's playing the sax on this record one of his records got picked way back in like episode 12 of this podcast it's very good um so cool. the solo stuff is very cool um yeah i i mean it's all like most of it is reduced to what sounds like basically emulations of feedback really from those instruments uh and like breath which is really really cool but then you have tatuzi akiyama playing this like really grounding acoustic guitar mm, that just yeah. kind of makes musical sense of everything and yeah. and and draws out the harmony in this really great way yeah so you have you have everyone doing these kind of yeah like weird extended techniques and breath and like flutter tongue and slap whatnot whatever they're slapping keys <laughs> um and yeah and then you have like the nice guitar he's such a tasteful player mm. um and it really balances out everything thank you very much for prompting me to dive into these records for your record too which i will repeat is absolute corker people please check it out <laughs> wow that's the first time anyone said that <laughs> <laughs> thank you and um one other question i wanted to ask you is about what your relationship to listening to music looks like in terms of how you tend to buy music in terms of format, where you go, where you listen to it. Yeah, tell me a bit about that. Um, buying music 
pretty much I only buy music on Bandcamp. Mm-hmm. Um, hopefully they don't bust the union and I don't have to stop doing that. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Not impressed. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, um, yeah, I, I listen to a lot of CDs because my partner, partner has a serious uh, CD collection and CD buying habit. Uh, which I get to be the beneficiary of. <laughs> um, and I do not like vinyl. I find it, the surface noise, very annoying. Mm. And <laughs> I don't really get what all the fuss is about. <laughs> um, other than it's big, which bigger is better. Okay, fine. But <laughs> yeah, I have I have tapes. I listen to them sometimes, but like, sort of limited space so we don't always have the cassette player set up so mm. um yeah mostly i don't i don't have any of the streaming services i do use soul seek um nice. which i highly encourage anyone you know you don't need to pay miles davis's estate to listen to kind of blue <laughs> you can just get it on soul seek it's fine true yeah um and yeah also just love going to hear people play music in person is soul seek still like popping like is there a lot of people using it i mean i used oh, it yeah. back in like really wow oh yeah oh nice totally yeah you can find anything on there pretty much but yeah i mean i certainly encourage people to support artists who need it mm-hmm. yeah amira thank you once again it's been wicked speaking with you My pleasure. And to everyone listening, see you next time. Goodbye.